Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikwe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Saturday, uh, July 23rd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. I thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And uh, later on in our program, uh, we'll be coming up with our Pan-African Newswire report. And we'll have dispatches on the July 31st commemorations of Pan-African Women's Day as organized by the African Union. Also, the African Union has issued a common energy policy to encompass the entire continent of Africa. The economic community of West African states has condemned an attack carried out in a military barracks near the capital of Mali. And yet another demonstrator uh, has been killed by Sudanese security forces. In the second hour, we listened to an address delivered by Republic of South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa. It was delivered uh, at uh, the 15th National Congress of the South African Communist Party, the SACP. Finally, we look back at the significance of the 51st anniversary of the Detroit 1967 rebellion, uh, whose anniversary is today. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, Stay tuned. Right now, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the Orchestra Bella Bella. Let's listen in. Mama, 
kola tolinga nidi Mwendo tikana izali tege Na koluka kaka seba mwenyo so Kona lungwa na masenginya ya babotiba yo Marie Nalingi teo yeba teo Zali mwasinga nalinga kanati ya motema Oyeba Ibalo yoyangi sitege Maria nalimbigi Papotiba yoba tungitinga mingi Balu bilanga naluka motolo ya libala
banda kite mama deo boka kiko salanga boye Isusu mama potikinga na bandi maladia boyo ego melinga Banda kanenge tokorukana kokwanyoto poteto kutana majili
and gives recommendations for sustaining and building on the gains of the second African women's decade on financial and economic inclusion uh, from 2020 to 2030, the decade we're in right now. Ms. Prudence uh, Nguyenia, the acting director of the Women's Gender and Youth Directorate, African Union Commission, noted that the launch of the report served as an official closure of the first African women's decade in preparation for the second African women's decade on financial and economic inclusion, 2020 to 2030. She, however, cautioned that there was no closure to gender equality and women's empowerment, stressing that the 10 themes of the African women's decade were relevant uh, as they were in 2010 when the decade was first declared. We will continue to prioritize the issue and especially accelerate actions to ensure that the objectives of the first decade are realized. Uh, Mrs. Eunice Depege, the president of the Pan-African Women's Organization, said while celebrating the milestone of the last decade, let us continue to be cognizant of the challenges that are outlined in the report as we implement the women's decade on financial and economic inclusion. Civil society gender pre-summit and high-level celebrations on July the 31st, 2022, would be held in a hybrid form online and in person in Venhoek, Namibia. This year marks the 60th anniversary of the Pan-African Women's Organization, which is Africa's first collective women's organization, which has contributed to the struggle for the continent's liberation from colonialism, the elimination of apartheid, and the eradication of gender inequality, discrimination, and injustices against women. Since its establishment in 1962 in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, the Pan-African Women's Organization's mission has been to ensure that women's concerns are integrated into Africa's liberation agenda and that women's participation equally, fully, and effectively in the political, economic, social, and cultural life of the continent. The Pan-African Women's Organization, a specialized agency of the African Union, has played an important role in mobilizing African women on the continent and the diaspora to rally around collective struggles for a free and prosperous Africa. Also from the African Union, the Executive Council has adopted the African Common Position on Energy Access and Just Transition as a comprehensive approach that charts the continent's short, medium, and long-term energy development pathways. It is to accelerate universal energy access and transition without compromising development imperatives. The African Union Commission, in collaboration with other Pan-African institutions, adopted the common position during the AU mid-year coordination meeting on the fringes of the 41st ordinary session of the Executive Council that was held in Lusaka, Zambia, uh, recently on July the 15th. Uh, the common position stipulates that Africa will continue to deploy all forms of its abundant energy resources, including renewable and non-renewable energy, to address energy demand. And copy of the document made available to the Ghana News Agency in Tema has stated, according to the common position agreement, natural gas, green, and low-carbon hydrogen and nuclear energy will be expected to play a crucial role in expanding modern energy access in the short the medium term while enhancing the uptake uh, of renewables in the long term for low carbon and climate resilient trajectories. Dr. Amani Abu Zaid, the African Union Commissioner for Infrastructure and Energy, described the adoption of the common position as a major step forward. He said this is an important and major step forward towards ensuring and confirming Africa's right for a differentiated path towards the goal of universal access to energy 
ensuring energy security for our continent and strengthening its resilience, while at the same time acting responsibly towards our planet by improving the energy mix. Uh, Dr. Abu Zayed uh, emphasized that it was a timely measure to push for favorable outcomes and tangible investments in energy and infrastructure at COP27 set to take place in November of 2022 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. He said access to energy currently stood low in Africa compared to other regions with more than 600 million Africans living without electricity services while 900 million lack access to clean cooking facilities. Uh, Dr. Abu Zayed stressed that the African common position encouraged striking a balance between ensuring access to electricity to catalyzing the much-needed socioeconomic growth in Africa and smoothly transitioning towards an energy system based on renewable and clean energy sources matching the ambitious uh, Agenda 2063. He stated that the African Union attached high importance to the implementation of ambitious energy goals designed to build resilient energy infrastructure in the continent. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In West Africa, the uh, Commission of the Economic Community of West African States has condemned the terrorist attacks carried out with vehicle-borne explosive devices in the early hours of July 22, 2022, on the Kati military base near Bamako, capital of the Republic of Mali, resulting in several casualties. The Commission, however, commends the bravery and vigilance uh, of the Malian soldiers in halting this heinous attack and swiftly bringing the situation under control. According to the commission, it expresses deep sympathy to the families of victims of the terror attack and commiserates uh, with people uh, and government in Mali. The commission reiterates this determination to accompany the people of the Republic of Mali towards a successful transition and stability uh, inside the country. And uh, finally, a protester was killed by security forces uh, just on Thursday during an anti-coup demonstration in Abdurman. That's according to the Central Committee of Sudanese Doctors. Months after the coup, the Neighborhood Resistance Committee continued to voice their rejection of the military regime established by General Abdel Fattah al-Bahan. The protesters, quote, was hit in the chest uh, by live bullets fired uh, by the coup authorities, unquote, to disperse. The protest in Abdurman said the independent medical group in a statement on Thursday. Resistance committees said that the dead Abu Bakr Musasin Ismail, a.k.a. Gima, was shot near the Al-Azari round point in Abdurman. He was buried during the night in a huge funeral protest. The death brings the total number of protesters killed during the anti-coup protest to 115, according to the CC. SD. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And concluding this segment, we'd like to remind our listeners uh, that uh, the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service designed to foster intelligence discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1988. And since then, has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African 
and Global Affairs. If you'd like to log on uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website at uh, the Pan-African uh, Newswire, and that's at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, uh, the worldwide radio broadcast uh, for, uh, of course, today. Uh, and today is Saturday, July 23rd, uh, 2022. Just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And we'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back uh, with much more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Welcome back, and that was the music of the legendary Rotary Connection uh, out of Chicago with the young uh, flower child, Minnie Richardson, uh, music from the late 1960s uh, featuring Sidney Barnes as well on vocals, along uh, with Minnie Richardson. Uh, That tune was entitled Life Could. And uh, just last weekend, the South African Communist Party held its 15th National Congress in previous uh, episodes, uh, we have brought you uh, speeches from the outgoing Secretary General, Dr. Blade and Zimande, as well as addresses uh, from uh, the uh, President of uh, the Congress of South African Trade Unions, Comrade Losi. And right now we want to listen uh, to an address uh, from uh, African National Congress President and President of the Republic of South Africa, Joe Ramaphosa, his address uh, before uh, the 15th National Congress of the South African Communist Party. Let's listen to the president's address. South African Communist Party, Viva! Viva! Viva Kosatu, Viva! Viva! Viva African National Congress, Viva! Viva! Manda! Comrade Chairperson of the South African Communist Party, Comrade Zokwana, the General Secretary of the SACP, Comrade Blade Zimande, members of the Central Committee of the SACP, the leadership of the Alliance who are here. I saw the National Chairperson of the African National Congress and the number of National Executive Committee members. I haven't seen the leadership of COSATU, but they are here. I can see the leaders of COSATU. Veterans and stalwarts of our movement, delegates who have come from far and afield. Comrade Blade was whispering to me that we have amongst us up to 40 fraternal organizations that have come from across the world. This is a phenomenal attendance and I'd like to welcome you to South African soil and thank you for coming. And I extend my greetings to all delegates and comrades who are here. Let me start off by saying that on behalf of the entire membership and leadership of the African National Congress, I bring you warm, fraternal and revolutionary greetings. Warm greetings even in winter, so that you can feel warm, even though you are wearing all red but the greetings from the ANC will make you even warmer. So we extend those greetings to you. 
the bonds that have joined the ANC and the SACP together in common struggle over many decades are as valued and as important as they've ever been. The party has grown in membership, it has also grown in strength, and indeed it has also grown in influence. We applaud you because by growing the party, you have contributed to strengthening the democratic progressive movement in our country. General Secretary Nzimande, I believe, as you have also said, this is your last Congress as General Secretary, left with a few hours. I think you are to be applauded for continuing to lead the party over the many years and to have seen it grow into the organization that it is today. I take off my hat to you and applaud you for the excellent work that you have done. There are times when some would have, appeared, would have said that you appeared mad, but there were many times when you are quite effective as you continue to be, ensuring that the message of communists in our country is spread around effectively and we thank you and indeed the entire leadership of the party for having made sure that the party remains strong even during trying times. Even at the darkest moments of our struggle, even during turbulent times, this revolutionary alliance has stood firm and remained resolute in pursuit of our shared program which is the National Democratic Revolution. As many have called for the dissolution of the Alliance, as many have called it an outdated and irrelevant Alliance, we have continued to work together to advance the interests of the people of South Africa, in particular the poor and the working class. The ANC and the SACP have had a tightly interwoven relationship which spans many decades and we remain firmly committed to our alliance with the SACP and we remain convinced that the role of the SACP in advancing the fundamental transformation of our economy and our society is very key to the future of our country. As a movement, we fully support the determination of the SACP to build a powerful socialist movement of workers and the poor. We recognize, however, that it is not enough to state our commitment to this alliance we need to work for it. We need to work hard and we need to continuously ensure that this movement remains united, cohesive and effective. 
We recognize that there have been weaknesses. There have also been lapses and shortcomings in how we have managed this relationship and how we have approached the common tasks and responsibilities that are at hand. At times our structures both at national, that is alliance structures, at provincial and at regional level have not worked as they should have. And certainly in the recent months <coughs> our structures at national level have not worked as well as they should have, have not responded to the challenges that our movement face, faces. Among other things, the discussion, for instance, about the reconfiguration of the alliance is something that needs to be concluded so that we have an alliance that is suited to the conditions and the tasks of the present. I can say that as president of the ANC, I do support that we should have a thoroughgoing discussion on the reconfiguration of the alliance. We must discuss in depth precisely what our roles, what our responsibilities are as we chart the way forward. So we are going to devote time to conclude that discussion. It has started, but I know that it is causing a great deal of anxiety, both within the party and COSATU, that the African National Congress has not fully concluded its own discussions. We will make sure that we hasten this, so that when the Alliance Political Council meets, we are able to finalize our discussions on the reconfigured alliance. It must be an alliance that is able to develop a common view on crucial areas of social and economic development, including on questions such as the form and the content of the social compact that we've been talking about. I listened very carefully to you, Nobala, as you were presenting your political report yesterday, and you said that the very first compact that we crafted, not only as a movement but as a people, was our constitution. And we therefore need to use that template to build on, other, on another compact, a compact which should be comprehensive. And if it has to be built to be a comprehensive compact, it needs to have key highlights and elements that can enable it, that compact to have pillars. So we need to finalize those pillars of a compact, and we expect that the SACP will participate with us as we finalize an overarching compact that should be able to take this country forward. The challenges that have beset the ANC in recent times have also manifested themselves within the Alliance and have at times contributed to some of the challenges experienced by our Alliance partners, 
both the SACP and COSATU. Much as we have had these challenges, at times you have lesser challenges. For instance, Comrade Soli Mapaile was telling me, I was asking him whether you were able to adopt your credentials easily because the current experience is as we hold conferences, both at ANC level, union conferences and so forth, the Congress movement seems to be beset by huge problems of even adopting credentials. Comrade Soli boastfully says to me, and boastfully, underlined boastfully, he boastfully says to me, we adopted our credentials in less than 15 minutes. So, I applaud you. And I will post from time to time when you engage with them. But that's a wonderful boast because this is precisely what we want to see. We want to see high discipline in our structures, organizational structures, and we want to see high discipline in our movement more broadly. So much as we are beset by many problems, we are proud and pleased that the party has demonstrated that it is able to overcome many, many challenges and problems that a number of our Congress uh, movement structures are going through. We have a shared interest in the state of each other's organization. The SACP has a profound interest and must have a profound interest in the renewal and the revitalization of the African National Congress. And by the same measure, the ANC has an interest in an SACP that has the organizational coherence and the capacity to advance its policies and programs and to be an unfailing champion of the working people and the poor in our country. Yes, we also have an interest in the organizational integrity of COSATU as well and have been able to demonstrate that when COSATU itself had its own challenges. We therefore come to this Congress to state our determination as the African National Congress to support the SACP and to build the alliance. We come to this Congress to ask the membership and the leadership of the SACP to actively support, but more importantly, to be actively involved as members of the ANC in the renewal and the rebuilding process of the African National Congress. So you are not to be spectators. You are not to be bystanders. You are not to be onlookers. You are not to be just like neighbors. You, I call upon you to be actively involved because the task of renewing and rebuilding the ANC should be seen as our collective task. Your Congress, Comrade Zogwar, is taking place at a difficult time for our country. The accumulated legacy of colonialism and apartheid has been compounded by the effects of state capture and corruption, 
by the devastating effect of COVID-19 pandemic and by an energy crisis that has lasted for well over more than 15 years and also by the global instability that the world is going through. Our people right now are suffering. Our people have huge burdens on their shoulders. They are suffering from massive job losses as a result of the pandemic and the public violence and destruction in July last year. They are suffering from the rising cost of living, which is mainly driven by the rise of food prices and fuel due to, in part, the conflict in Ukraine, the effects of climate change and the disruptions of the global supply chains. Our people are suffering from persistent load shedding, which not only causes great inconvenience to households, to the lives of individual South Africans, and to businesses, and to various institutions of learning and otherwise. But this is what is holding the growth of and recovery of our economy back. Our people are also suffering from the daily threat of violent crime and gangsterism, fueled by deteriorating social and economic conditions that prevail in our country today. Yet while several dis disastrous events have actually conspired in recent years to worsen conditions under which South Africans live, the underlying problem is that over almost 30 years of freedom, we have not done enough to transform our economy and our society. We have not done enough to tackle extreme inequality of our apartheid and colonial past, which continues to divide our society by race, gender, class, and regional origin. Since the advent of democracy, we have made significant and undeniable progress in responding to the basic needs of our people. That cannot be denied. We have done this through the provision of housing, water, sanitation, electricity, health care, education, grants, as well as social infrastructure. However, despite this progress, inequality continues to stalk our people. Inequality continues as a defining feature of our society. We see this inequality manifested in areas such as access to skills, healthcare, security, land, productive assets, employment, and other economic opportunities. It is to overcome these social and economic conditions that we continue to work to advance the National Democratic Revolution, our common program. The NDR is, after all, 
the reason for the very existence of our alliance and why we are determined to build and to strengthen the broader democratic movement. So if we are to make any progress, we need to fundamentally come up with ideas, proposals, initiatives, and various thoughts to change the structure, the purpose, and the way in which our economy operates. We need to ensure, as the Freedom Charter declares, that the people shall share in the country's wealth. We all agree that the people of our country do not all share in the wealth of our country as set out in the Freedom Charter. As currently structured, the economy does not allow all of our people to share in the wealth of the country. A number of observers and some from quarters that you would never have even suspected who have analyzed our economy tells us that some of the impediments that stand in the way of inclusive participation and growth in our economy are the high levels of concentration of ownership and control of our economy by a few. And some of these are institutions such as the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, who when they have looked at our economy over a number of years have said your economy is just too concentrated in terms of ownership, in terms of control, although the management of the economy there are some movements there but certainly not sufficient yet. The special architecture of our country and the skills misalignment contribute a great deal as one of those factors that impede the growth of our economy. And one of the consistent objectives of our alliance since the adoption of the Freedom Charter is to address this issue of the concentration of our economy. Following the adoption of our Freedom Charter, our movement went to Morogoro. And in Morogoro, the issue of the concentration of ownership of the economy was raised prominently and it was characterized as a monopoly control of our economy. And this has persisted ever since. Even at Morogoro, where some of the people who did the proper analysis, like leading communists in our movement, came up with the correct analysis, but ever since then, we never came up with proposals, with ways of how to deconcentrate the economy of our country. Now, Comrade General Secretary, for a few hours that are left in your participation as General Secretary, the key issue that should confront this conference is to debate precisely this issue. 
because now it, it has become very clear over the 30-year period that the African National Congress has been the governing party leading the alliance in doing so. Our economy has not grown at the levels that we would want it to grow to be able to absorb the unemployed people who continue to rise year after year after year. We need to ask ourselves precisely what is the cause of this. Is the concentration ownership of our country one of the reasons? Is it the skills problem? Is it the special architecture? What is it? And I'm sure as communists, as always, you will have a plethora of ideas and suggestions and I would want to see that coming to the fore because it is from the SACP that we are, have been able in the past to get great ideas of how we should move our struggle forward. While progress has been made in bringing new entrants into several areas of the economy, the issue of concentration and monopoly control remains unresolved, as I said. Today, monopolies continue to hold back growth and development. They stifle competition. They inflate prices and continue to exclude millions of South Africans from economic opportunity. While we are committed to dismantling and broaden these monopolies and broadening control and ownership of the economy, we have not sufficiently developed the instruments to do so. This Congress should be able to come up with some of those thoughts and some of those ideas. We have been strong on analysis and theory, but weak on implementation. We have strengthened our competition laws and becoming and have become more assertive in using them to open up key economic sectors of our economy. We must remember that the Competition Act itself states that through greater competition it aims to promote greater spread of ownership in the economy, in particular to increase the ownership state of historically disadvantaged people. A significant development in the application of our competition policies has been the greater use of employee share ownership schemes as a vehicle for empowerment. And the party does need to reflect on this because this development has not, had, has not come without a great deal of criticism from a number of quarters. We need to draw on the experiences that we have had in a concerted drive towards greater worker ownership in companies, giving them a stake in the viability and the sustainability of the businesses that they work for. As a democratic government, we've introduced programs such as the Black Industrialist Program to fund the new entrants into the economy as owners and controllers. We have significantly ac expanded access to education and skills development, which is essential for any effort to enable greater access to economic opportunities. We have undertaken a program 
of land reform, which has seen over 9 million hectares of agricultural land transferred through restitution and redistribution. But we all know that that is not enough. We have not yet produced in detail a comprehensive program to end the control of a few in the economy of our country and advance with greater urgency the purpose towards the vision of the Freedom Charter. At this moment in our history, this must be the central and overriding task of our revolutionary alliance. In undertaking this work, comrades, we must use every resource and every lever at our disposal to drive inclusive growth. Now, as we grapple with the challenge of economic transformation, we should also reflect on the strategy and tactics document that was adopted at Morogoro in 1969, when we said, we do not underestimate the complexity which will face a people's government during the transformation period, you know, the enormity of the problems of meeting economic needs of the masses of our people. But one thing the document continues to say is certain. In our land, this cannot be effectively tackled unless the basic wealth and the basic resources are at the disposal of the people as a whole and are not manipulated by sections of individuals, be they black or white, close quotes. Now more than ever before, more than half a century after Morogoro, we have a much clearer sense of the complexities as well as challenges of meeting the economic needs of our people. We also have a clearer sense of what needs to be done to overcome these challenges and build a society that was envisaged by the Freedom Charter. What is certain is that we will only be able to successfully undertake these tasks if we are, as an alliance, united in purpose and in action. The party and COSATU have called for a summit to discuss the economy and energy. And I support that, and I would like to see that held as soon as possible so that all of us can benefit from the insights and knowledge and wisdom. So let us have that summit as quickly as possible because a lot is at stake right now. The summit must also primarily focus on how we can generate growth that creates employment, growth that allows cooperatives, that allows SMMEs and informal businesses to emerge and expand, that enables the expansion of social protection to the poor and vulnerable, and that promotes more effective economic empowerment of black South Africans and women and young people. 
Yes, at that summit, we must discuss issues of even the basic income grant. We must discuss issues of how we deconcentrate the ownership of our economy. That time, in my view, has now arrived and the Alliance must sit down and have those very deep, thoroughgoing discussions without any fear, without holding back. In determining the respective roles and responsibilities of the public and private sectors, we should draw guidance from Ready to Govern document of 1992, which sets out policy guidelines for a democratic South Africa. During the summit, we should reflect on what we set out in 1992 and see whether it is still relevant. The ready to govern document envisaged a democratic state with ultimate responsibility for coordinating, planning and guiding the development of the economy towards sustainable growth in cooperation with the trade union movement, with business and other organs of society. It spoke of the need for economic policy that democratizes the economy and creates productive employment opportunities at a living wage for all South Africans. The document envisaged a dynamic private sector employing the skills and acumen of all South Africans and of business activities which contribute significantly to job creation being actively encouraged. There are some that have urged us to make a choice between a developmental state that drives economic and social transformation and a vibrant, expanding private sector that fuels growth and employment. Just as we recognize the role of business in creating employment, we should not diminish, yes, the central role of the state in coordinating, in planning, in guiding, in enabling the development of the economy. And yes, in setting up companies, state-owned enterprises through which it will foster the employment of our people. That is what we would want to see the state doing. We need, therefore, comrades, a strong, capable and developmental state with a public sector which is a dynamic and agile private sector that work together and complement each other. Yet, if the state is to effectively support growth and development as envisaged in Ready to Govern, then it needs to have sufficient capital, skills and must highlight the use of technology as one of the key enablers in the modern times. It needs to be efficient, it also needs to be innovative, but it also needs to be competitive. Even if we will have state entities competing against each other. For instance, Comrade Gwede Mantashe, in dealing with this problem of energy, has said, President, why don't we set up 
set up another state-owned entity so that we lessen our risks just as they are exposed in one entity. And I've said, I agree with him, because the state must continue to play a key role, but I'll come back to that. Unfortunately, many of our state-owned enterprises do not exhibit the features that I'm talking about. There are various reasons for this, including policy missteps, poor management, state capture, corruption, and a failure to adapt to changing technology and market conditions as well. That is why we have embarked on an overhaul, overhaul of our state-owned enterprise landscape to promote greater accountability, oversight, as well as competitiveness. It is why we have embarked on the reforms in key network industries, including energy, telecoms, water, rail, and transport. These measures aim to improve efficiency, introduce new technology, mobilize greater investment from both public and private sources, and introduce competition where this would support our developmental objectives. As we undertake these reforms, we remain firm on our position that strategic state-owned enterprises must remain in public hands if they are to drive growth, transformation, and development. Now, there is always this notion, as we try to restructure some of these state-owned enterprises, accusations are thrown around that what we are seeking to do is to privatize some of these state-owned enterprises so that we can sell them cheap to so-and-so and so-and-so. That is a lie. We are not, through restructuring, seeking to privatize. In fact, we are trying to modernize and ensure that the state continues to play its role, its given role in ensuring that these state-owned enterprises function well. Now, as we undertake these reforms, comrades, we want to pursue a developmental agenda. The reforms we are undertaking in the energy sector provide a good illustration of the approach that we need to take. Our national utility, ESCOM, has not only been in a state of distress, not only for the past three years or four years, has been in distress for easily 15 years. But it has been operating according to a model that is no longer suited to the technology or the economic conditions of the present. For the past 100 years, ESCOM has operated as a monopoly, as a single company responsible for the electricity generation, transmission, and distribution. And I always give an analogy to many people that if you are to fly from O.R. Tambo to Cape Town at night, or Cape Town to O.R. Tambo at night, you just look at the splendor of the wonderful lights that adorn our country from the north to the south, from the east to the west. And if you sit back
and you ask yourself, where is this generated from? And then you reflect on the fact that it is generated by one company. One company which, if it fails, becomes a spectacular calamity for the entire country. Now, that is the risk that we have. If we look at other countries, like China, for instance, it has a number of state-owned electricity-generating companies that even compete amongst themselves, compete amongst themselves to even bring prices down. And that is a future that I think we should begin to imagine. That, yes, we should reduce the risk that the country could be exposed to. Like right now, we are exposed to a monumental risk because the one company that has been generating electricity for a hundred years with power stations that are more than 50 years. I was saying to Comrade Gwede the other day, when we started organizing mine workers in 1982 and organizing the mines and the power stations, some of those power stations, Comrade Zogwana will remember, were already 30, 40 years old. With the NUM being 30 years old, is it 40 years now? 40 years old today, you can look at the power stations that are so aged and that continue to pump electricity. And that in part is part of the weakness and the risk. For much of its history, this model that we have pursued has worked, but we are today witnessing the great risks associated with placing sole responsibility for electricity generation in one company. And that is why when Comrade Guede flighted the idea of saying, why not a second one, which can be owned by the government, and I said, I think that's not a bad idea. When ESCOM fails, the country is thrown into darkness, as we are now. That is why we have embarked on a process to establish all these three entities, to separate generation, distribution, as well as transmission. And that is why we've also brought in the generation of energy from solar and from wind. And it is why we have increased the licensing threshold as well for those who would want to generate to be a little higher than what it has always been. Not only are these measures, comrades, intended to address the current shortfall in electricity, but they are also intended to enable ESCOM to improve its own financial position and operational performance and become a far more competitive provider of electricity. In the coming days, we will be announcing additional measures that we need to take to address the current electricity crisis by coming up with new ideas of bringing new generation capacity online. The severe economic and social impact of load shedding means that we have to use every available means and remove every regulatory obstacle to bring extra electricity onto the grid as soon as possible. 
The transformation of the economy must take place alongside and in support of urgent measures that we need to, to, to take to create employment and support livelihoods. Now, as the economic effects of COVID-19 took effect, we acted quickly to lessen the impact on the poor and the vulnerable. The other day I said, and a journalist asked, where do I get the figures? I said, within a period of a year and 18 months, we had lost 2 million jobs. And I said, well, apart from getting it from Stats SA, you actually see it in the streets of our townships, in the pathways of our villages, you actually see that COVID-19 has wreaked havoc in the way that it has destroyed jobs. In April 2020, we introduced the largest social and economic relief package in our history as a, as a country. This provided cash directly to the poorest households, wage support to workers, and various forms of relief to struggling businesses. As a result, many jobs were saved, many businesses were kept afloat, and millions of households were kept out of dire poverty. Some measures, like the 350 Social Relief of Distress grant, remain in place, although there are still some issues and challenges that we have to solve in that regard. But they have reached 10 million South Africans, which is quite historic in our country within a short space of time. This is happening alongside measures that we have taken to promote employment, like the Presidential Employment Stimulus, which has provided work, comrades, and livelihood opportunities to around 880,000 people since it was started. The Presidential Employment Stimulus and the number of people now go around, as Comrade Blade was telling me when he went to Bloemfontein, are now calling it the PESI. The PESI is a good example of an effective state intervention that responds to the immediate problem of unemployment while the job market takes time to recover from the pandemic. This employment stimulus program and there are quite a few of them, are not simply about providing unemployed people with an income. They are making a real contribution to social and economic development in our country. The good part of it is the school assistance program, which has given 600,000 young people experience and opportunities while adding significant value to schools in which they have been working. School governing bodies, teachers, principals have welcomed this initiative and want to see it continuing because it has brought young people who would ordinarily not have found work into the work environment and it has given them a great deal of experience. And as part of the presidential stimulus program, Vouchers have been given to nearly 70,000 smallholder farmers for agricultural inputs. 
and this has reportedly brought tens of thousands of hectares of fallow land into production, boosting agriculture output at a time of growing global food insecurity. As we expand public and social employment programs, we have been taking steps to encourage the growth of small medium enterprises, but also to encourage the growth of cooperatives and informal businesses. And these include the expansion of the employment tax incentive to encourage small businesses to employ more people, the loan guarantee scheme that has been redesigned to provide rather finance to smaller businesses and the reduction of the red tape that holds back the growth of businesses. Comrades, these are some of the practical ways in which we are both supporting livelihoods and also seeking to advance economic transformation. While economic policies and programs make an important contribution to the broader task of reducing inequality, they are not the only areas where we need to address exclusion as well as marginalization of our people. That is why, for example, we need to proceed with speed with the implementation of the national health insurance to ensure that all South Africans can receive quality health care regardless of their ability to pay. And in this regard, we must applaud the role that has been played by the party over and over and over again. The party has been advocating the implementation of the national health insurance. Now, I can tell you now that the national health insurance will be implemented. Whether they like it or not, it is going to happen. The COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated on the one hand the extent of inequality in access to health care and on the other hand the ability of the private and public health care to work together to confront a national health emergency. This should both motivate and encourage us to work together to implement the NHI. We have done much to address inequality in education through fee-free fee schools and massively expanding the provision of financial support for higher education students from poor working class families. And in this regard, without even giving him any form of praise, Comrade Blade, as Minister of Higher Education, has played a critical role in getting the young people who today receive NESFAS. He has played a critical role in getting that allocation to be raised by billions. Many of the young people who are in our higher education centers today are there because of voices and the work such as Comrade Blade and yourselves as a party, and we say thank you to that. But we need to focus greater attention on the quality of our educational outcomes and in reducing the high dropout rates in both basic and higher education. 
The inequality that exists across all these areas of economic and social development has a substantial gender dimension to it. Our struggle for fundamental economic and social transformation means that we must address the status of women in all areas of public and private life. Not only are women disadvantaged in access to employment, ownership, education, skills and economic networks, but they also face discrimination in political, social, religious, traditional, domestic and other settings. They are faced with extreme levels of gender-based violence, abuse and femicide. The National Democratic Revolution cannot advance unless we as a society address gender inequality and relentlessly pursue the empowerment of women in all areas of life. I was most delighted, Comrade Blade, to hear you spend a big portion of your political report on the issue of the empowerment of women. I was most impressed with that. We will only be able to advance the NDR if we read our movement of myopic gender policies. We must ensure that the empowerment of women within our own ranks, within our own structures, within government institutions is upgraded to a higher level. We will also not be able to advance the NDR if we do not rid our movement of factionalism, patronage and corruption. We will only succeed if we end all forms of state capture and resist all efforts by those who benefit from corruption to undermine our democracy, our institutions and our constitutional order as well. The SACP must be commended for its resolute opposition to corruption, for speaking out against state capture when many within our ranks were silent, and for remaining vigilant against any efforts to steal the resources that rightly belong to the people of South Africa. So we commend you. And in many ways, you had to pay a great deal. You took a lot of blows, a lot of uh, punches, but you stood firm. And we, stand, we thank the party for standing firm on issues of corruption. The report of the State Capture Commission has made findings that are critical of public institutions companies, our own organization, the, the African National Congress. It has made damning findings against several leaders and members and has made far-reaching recommendations to ensure accountability and redress. Difficult as these findings may be, we need to see them as an opportunity to confront our own shortcomings to address our weaknesses and to rebuild and renew our movement. As we have correctly noted, state capture 
is a form of counter-revolution that directly threatens the advancement of the NDR. And it is, it is only when we see it in this light that we will be able to take action to deal with state capture and be able to say never, never, never again must this ever happen to this beautiful land. We have seen the intensification of counter-revolution through the destruction of state-owned enterprises, the relentless attack on institutions of democracy with the aim of rendering them powerless and irrelevant, large-scale corruption and the weakening of the ANC resulting in a declining ability to discharge its revolutionary duties. It is in this context that we should view the orchestrated acts of public violence and the destruction of July 2021. This was a deliberate but unsuccessful effort to foment a popular insurrection against the democratic state and our constitutional order with the intention of shielding those responsible for wrongdoing from accountability. As this alliance, we need to understand that the onslaught on our democracy continues in several overt and covert forms, and we need to remain resolute in our determination to defeat each and every effort to derail the National Democratic Revolution. I'm rather glad that we had within our midst today Comrade Slava, who has given us a perspective at an international level of the conflict that's unfolding in the Ukraine. We were heavily criticized for the stance that we took. We, more than more, many other countries were heavily criticized, even as we abstained at the UN together with some 25 countries on our continent and many others. But we were clear that from a political point of view, the solution to this conflict should be what we were taught by the great Nelson Mandela, that the solution to conflict is through dialogue. The solution to conflict is through negotiation. We have continued to harp on this even as we've either been threatened, even as we've either been blackmailed, Comrade Slava, we have remained very clear and firm because politically we are very clear about our stance and we are not going to be moved or shifted from the stance that we have taken. As South Africa, we continue to play our role globally and internationally, not only more globally but also on our continent. We continue to advocate for the resolution of conflicts through dialogue and where dialogue does not seem to work, we have taken steps to go, for instance, to assist our brothers and sisters in Mozambique where they are facing insurgents who are continuing to undermine 
their democracy and their sovereignty. And we will continue to support our brothers and sisters in Mozambique, in Cabo Delgado, and we have deployed soldiers there, and they are fighting a good war, because we must restore peace in Mozambique. <laughs> Comrades, I'd like to conclude to address a matter that has concerned many people within the democratic movement and in society, a matter which is topical right now, just over a month ago, there were criminal charges that were a complaint that was laid against me at the South African Police Service. The complaint related to a theft that was committed at my farm in February. The allegations contained in the complaint are serious, and it is only correct that they be thoroughly investigated and that the due legal process be allowed to take its course without interference. As we emerge from the era of state capture, we must be firm on the principle that no person, not a single person, is above the law and that everyone, regardless of the position that they occupy, must be held accountable for their actions. I have pledged my full cooperation to the investigation process that is underway. I am prepared to be held accountable. I opted of my own volition to appear before the Integrity Commission. We were meant to meet a week ago, but the date did not suit everyone. We will finalize another date in days that come, and I will go before the Integrity Commission. But I would like to say I will not allow these allegations to deter me from what needs to be done to rebuild our economy. I will not allow this to deter me, to discourage me from the work that I have to do. And I will not be intimidated, nor distracted, nor bullied into submission. Now, for as long as I'm still privileged to be the President of the Republic, I will do my work, and I will continue to work alongside South Africans, working together with them to create jobs, to tackle poverty, to build safe communities, and to change the lives of our people, and also to tackle the issue of electricity in our country. I will continue to pursue far-reaching economic reforms to secure a reliable supply of affordable electricity and to end state capture and corruption. Tomorrow I will lead a team of ministers and officials to visit one of our troubled power stations and have discussions with the workers, with the unions and with managers and that I want to do without being distracted. I want to do my work. For as long as also I'm president of the ANC, I will fulfill the mandate of the 54th conference to undertake and complete the fundamental renewal of our movement. The National Executive Committee is going to be meeting in special sessions in coming days 
to look at the extent to which we can deepen, broaden and foster the renewal of our movement. And I will work, work alongside all leaders and cadres of our movement and together with our alliance partners to end factionalism, to end patronage and corruption. We will continue to build our branches as centers of community activism and re-establish our cadres as selfless servants of our people. As a movement and as an alliance, we will never succumb to the manipulation and disinformation, to the abuse of office, to the undermining of democratic institutions, or to the threat of violence or insurrections. We are in the fight, comrades. We are in the fight for the soul of the African National Congress. And we will not back down for fighting to ensure that the ANC is revived. We are in, also in the fight for the survival of our democracy. We are in the fight for the survival of our way of life, our way of doing things. We are in the fight for the well-being of our people and the progress of our nation. As we confront the challenges of the present, we would do well to recall the message of Oliver Reginald Tambo to the 7th Congress of the South African Communist Party in 1989 when he said, let us consolidate and strengthen our alliance and advance in concert. Let us remain vigilant and watch out for those forces who never leave the boardrooms where they studiously plot our undoing. Our victories are many and significant, but now, more than ever before, we need to defend them, that is our victories, in order to secure our offensive and ensure our advance to the victory of our rev revolution." Close quotes. In the battles that must be fought against poverty, against inequality, against violence, against crime, against greed, against those who perpetrate violence against women and against corruption, we will not submit and we will not relent, nor will we ever, ever give in. We will remain true to our values, we will remain devoted to our mission, and we will remain committed to the people of this country. And I know that we shall prevail. As for you as communists, you should, as Tom Lodge has written in his mammoth epic history of the SACP, which he called Red Road to Freedom. I encourage you to read that book. You must follow what he calls the Red Road. Inzela Ebong. We have a red road and you must follow that red road. Because that red road is your journey. It is our collective journey. And as a Congress, as you go on to elect your leaders, your new leaders and otherwise, I wish you well. I wish you strength, but above all I wish you clarity. 
We rely on the South African Communist Party to be the intellectual reservoir of our movement, to come up with ideas, to be innovative, to put forward political perspectives and analyses that will help to guide our movement to move forward. So I call upon you to embark and continue on this red road. This red road that has great responsibilities on you as members of the SACP, as the communists in our country. And we put you on a high pedestal for clear reasons. Your own, your own DNA from the very beginning has been a DNA of being progressive, of being clear, of being analytical, and we expect that you will live up to that. Thank you very much for having me here. Continue to have a great Congress. Thank you very much. Amanda. That was uh, the speech of South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. Also, he is the president of the African National Congress of South Africa, the oldest liberation movement and political party on the African continent. Uh, he was giving a major address at the 15th National Congress of the South African Communist Party, uh, which was held uh, just uh, last week. And, of course, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Today is Saturday, July 23rd, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment right after this.
Welcome back. Uh, that was the Abyssinians with the song entitled I and I. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today, July 23rd, 2022, it represents the 55th anniversary of the beginning of the Detroit Rebellion of 1967, which began during the early morning hours of July 23rd, uh, 1967. And uh, we're going to listen uh, to some news reports as they unfolded on that day and the subsequent days of uh, arson, uh, property, uh, expropriation, and sniper fire, uh, mass killings uh, by the National Guard and police against people in retaliation for the rebellion. Let's listen in. In a hundred places, Detroit is afire. The destroyers striking from as far as three miles away from this west side ghetto where it all began early this morning with a police raid on an after-hours drinking parlor. There have been some reports of gunfire. Police are under orders not to fire. Rock and bottle throwing took some casualties among firemen, police, and three newsmen. A white man was stabbed this morning as he got off a bus in the area. No serious injuries are known. More than 200 looters have been arrested so far. Police officials say they do not have enough men to worry much about the looters. They are there to protect the firemen. 100 square blocks are now under siege. Governor Romney rushed to Detroit today to meet with Mayor Jerome Cavanaugh, who placed a curfew on the city at nightfall. Many Negro shop owners put up signs reading Soul Brother to avoid damage, but the fire bombers and looters are indiscriminate. And many of these stores are being looted, especially the white ones, because there's some bitterness. They feel that the prices are too high. They feel that they're being gouged. But of course, some of them in this crowd are just getting what they can get for nothing, that's all. Well, now, you are a Negro shop owner. Why were you looted? Well, with any, any group, any mob, you're going to find people who are... They don't care about race, they don't care about color, they don't care about religion, anything. They just want to get something for nothing. Uh, who do you think is uh, doing this? I really don't know. I don't have no idea. I don't have any idea. Who? We all are doing it. That's who's doing it. I tell you who's doing it. We all are doing it. 1,100 National Guardsmen have been rushed into as many areas as they can cover, protecting police. Looters carry off thousands of dollars of worth of goods with a gay sort of leisure. Gun shops have been raided, and as you walk through the area, people shout from their homes, watch out for the snipers. Everybody's returned to their homes. Return to their homes to take your own property. Curfew for 9 o'clock. Curfew 9 o'clock signed by the mayor of the city of Detroit. Whole blocks are now burning at dusk. The National Guard has moved in. The state police are cordoning off dozens of blocks of this west side. At this moment, there are at least 10 areas in town where looters have broken in and where firebombs have set fires. It looks like a B-52 raid in Detroit. 
John Hart, CBS News, Detroit. This is one of dozens of fires which raged through the night in Detroit. These firemen have been here half an hour, and the flames are still licking toward this gasoline station. That was once a linoleum store. Next door, a store nobody knows what it was. It is now gone. We can see from where we are standing three other fires. As night fades to light, 260 fires have been reported, some of them a block longer or more. Fire Chief Charles Quinlan made a first estimate of $100 million damage. Ignited by firebombs or just matches and paper, flames and smoke swallowed the sky, holding back the dawn. Firemen left some areas burning when snipers opened up from rooftops and windows. Some Negroes took arms to protect the firemen. Well over 100 are injured, three confirmed dead, one white woman by sniper fire, one looter shot by a store owner, and a sniper killed by a National Guardsman. Police say the vandals and arsonists are working over eight different areas, 139 square miles in all. The destroyers leapfrog from the center of the city into the suburbs out to the city's limits. Looting went mostly unchallenged in the early night as undermanned police squads tried to avoid triggering mass violence. One commander said property can be replaced, lives cannot. But with the arrival of 1,100 National Guardsmen and more promise, arrests came faster. More than a thousand of them now. That's how you Well, God damn it. This man was arrested for shooting up the street outside his store. Public schools are closed today, including Wayne State University with a student body of 28,000. A dark-to-dawn curfew was extended indefinitely, and downtown businesses requested clothes. It began in the district of Congressman John Conyers, who talked to WJKB's Sylvia Wayne. What efforts have you made at settling the disturbances? Well, I don't know if there's any one human being in the world that can settle these disturbances. This is a form of war by the have-nots to try to break into what they think they ought to be sharing and enjoying in our society. Uh, we've closed the encampment in Grayling, and we should have by uh, tomorrow morning about uh, six to 7,000 National Guardsmen here, as well as the additional uh, state police and, of course, the full uh, Detroit Police Department. Now, I think uh, all of these men who are already on the streets are doing a tremendous job, but particularly the firefighters of Detroit and these surrounding communities. There have been about 30 communities that have sent their equipment and their uh, firefighting personnel into Detroit a great example of cooperation. Now, under these circumstances, we urge everyone to stay off the streets of Detroit and to stay out of the central uh, uh, city of Detroit, to remain home unless they have essential business or emergency matters to take care of. Police were ordered not to fire until fired upon. Some of that happened. Guardsmen, too, with M1s and carbines returned fire, but sniping was occasional. Negro shop owners were victims of looting, too. Robert Prince is one. And many of these stores are being looted, especially the white ones, because there's some bitterness. They feel that the prices are too high. They feel that they're being gouged. But, of course, some of them in this crowd are just getting what they can get for nothing. So. Uh, who do you think is uh, doing this? 
I really don't know. I don't have no idea. Yeah, I don't have any idea. Who? We all are doing it. That's who's doing it. I tell you who's doing it. We all are doing it. It is the worst civil rupture in 24 years here, but the atmosphere of racial hatred seems to be thin. Looters rob pleasantly. This may rival Watts for destruction, but after all, half this city is Negro, many of whom are taking this loss. John Hart, CBS News, Detroit. Leisurely, as they clean up the small ends of the rupture that happened here and began two days ago. Detroit smolders in eight separate enclaves as far apart as seven miles, reaching from the city center to the city's limit. It is as if a flight of bombers struck. The fire raiders worked through the day. Destruction covers 100 square blocks at a cost of $100 million by the fire chief's estimate. It is a strange and unreal place. Crushed buildings and endless line of sightseers. Untiring looters, methodical as Saturday shoppers with no visible concern for arrest. A surrealistic family day on the warm streets. And the looters are integrated. More than a thousand have been arrested now for looting and vandalism. The usual bail is $10,000 each. Recorder's court will stay open all night for arraignment of the arrested. No one has had time to count the stores looted or burned. One estimate nears a thousand. Congressman John Conyers' home office is in one of those buildings where he met CBS News correspondent Jack Lawrence. Congressman Conyers, uh, they've burned your office. How does it feel to uh, be a victim of this kind of terrorism? My efforts are meaningless. We're dealing now with a part of our community uh, that are mostly uh, recorded in statistics, in the statistics of unemployment, in the statistics of poverty, in the statistics of crime, who uh, don't relate to me or to our, uh, our government or anybody else. And that's the part that's bothering me more than anything else. Broken glass, flying debris, shootings and stabbings have injured more than 800 people. One elderly man was found dead behind the building, both of them burned. During the night, firemen fought block-long curtains of flame, but left the areas where snipers started shooting at them. Set by firebombs or matches and paper, the fires traveled on and on. Mayor Jerome Cavanaugh toured the destruction today. A very disturbing thing to me with the number of people still on the, some of those streets, 12th Street, Linwood. Uh, naturally, a fair amount of curiosity seekers, but at the same time, a number of people that seem to uh, be uh, filled with, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, the carnival spirit in which uh, this thing was a great lark. Nearly 7,000 National Guardsmen moved into the troubled areas with M1s and carbines, protecting police, patrolling the tougher corners, returning sniper fire. At least one sniper was killed. Looters were indiscriminate among Negro and white businessmen. In dozens of streets, there is no commerce today as goods freely change hands. Many residents watch and worry. You got an awful lot of people in the world who don't want to be anything who just want to live off the fat of the land. And any man that's got a responsibility, a family, you don't see a family man out here. Just look around you. We're too busy. I'm too busy getting this thing. I got to go to work and learn a living for my family. You can go to college. Your dad's going to send you guys. You know why? He makes 10000 a year. 
My dad can't send me to college because he only makes 3000 a year. Now, let's get with it. This is going to happen all over America. It's going to be a hot world, not a hot summer. It's a hot world. But, brother, America better wake up to this. If they don't, we're going to burn down America. Or they're going to kill 22 million Negroes. Mayor Kavanaugh and Governor Romney agreed the state troops and officers here cannot cope with the coming night unless federal troops come to help. They came today, elements of the 82nd and 101st Airborne, to Selfridge Air Force Base, 30 miles from the city, to await orders from the president as Detroit enters its third night of civil rupture. John Hart, CBS News, Detroit. Today, Governor Romney communicated with Attorney General Ramsey Clark and told him of the extreme disorder in Detroit, Michigan. The Attorney General kept me advised throughout the morning. At 10.56 this morning, I received a wire from Governor Romney officially requesting that federal troops be dispatched to Michigan. This wire had been sent at 10.46 a.m., at 11.02 a.m. this morning, I instructed the Secretary of Defense, Mr. McNamara, to initiate the movement of the troops which the governor had requested. At the same time, I advised the governor by telegram that the troops would be sent to Selfridge Air Base, just northeast of Detroit, and would be available to support and to assist the some 8,000 Michigan National Guardsmen, and the several thousand state and local police under the command of Governor Romney and the mayor of Detroit. I informed the governor that these troops would arrive this afternoon. I also informed the governor that immediately Mr. Cyrus Vance, as special assistant to the Secretary of Defense and others, would proceed to Detroit for conferences with the governor and other appropriate officials. This plan proceeded precisely as scheduled. Approximately 5,000 federal troops were on their way by airlift to Detroit, Michigan, within a few hours. Mr. Vance, General Throckmorton, and others were in Detroit and in conference with Governor Romney by the middle of this afternoon. Their initial report was that it then appeared that the situation might be controlled without bringing the federal troops from the Selfridge Air Force Base into downtown Detroit. They therefore recommended to the president that the troops be maintained on a 30-minute alert, and they advised that they would be in continual touch with the situation and with Secretary McNamara and me making uh, periodic reports about every 30 minutes. At approximately 10.30 this evening, Mr. Vance and General Throckmorton reported to me by telephone that it was the then unanimous opinion of all of the state and federal officials who were in consultation, including Governor Romney, Mr. Vance, General Throckmorton, the mayor, and others, that the situation had developed in such a way in the few intervening hours as to make the use of federal troops to augment the police and Michigan National Guard imperative. They described the situation in considerable detail 
including the violence and deaths that had occurred in the past few hours, and submitted as their unanimous judgment of all concerned that the situation was totally beyond the control of the local authorities. On the basis of this confirmation of the need for Federal participation by Federal troops, and pursuant to the official request made by the Governor of the State of Michigan, in which Mayor Kavanaugh of Detroit joined, I forthwith issued the necessary proclamation and executive order as provided by the Constitution and the statutes. I advise Mr. Vance and General Thalkmorton to proceed immediately with the transportation of Federal troops from Selfridge Air Force Base to places of deployment within Detroit a movement which they had already provisionally begun pursuant to their authority. I am sure that the American people will realize that I take this action with the greatest regret and only because of the clear, the unmistakable, and the undisputed evidence that Governor Romney of Michigan and the local officials in Detroit have been unable to bring the situation under control. Law enforcement is a local matter. It is the responsibility of local officials and the governors of the respective states. The federal government should not intervene except in the most extraordinary circumstances. The fact of the matter, however, is that law and order have broken down in Detroit, Michigan. Pillage, looting, murder, and arson have nothing to do with civil rights. They are criminal conduct, and the federal government in the circumstances here presented had no alternative but to respond, since it was called upon by the governor of the state, and since it was presented with proof of his inability to restore order in Michigan. We will not tolerate lawlessness. We will not endure violence. It matters not by whom it is done or under what slogan or banner. It will not be tolerated. This nation will do whatever it is necessary to do to suppress and to punish those who engage in it. I know that with few exceptions, the people of Detroit and the people of Newark and the people of Harlem and of all of our American cities, however troubled they may be, deplore and condemn these criminal acts. I know that the vast majority of Negroes and whites are shocked and are outraged by them. So tonight, your President calls upon all of our people in all of our cities to join in a determined program to maintain law and order, to condemn and to combat lawlessness in all of its forms, and firmly to show by word and by deed that riots, looting, and public disorder will just not be tolerated. In particular, I call upon the people of the ravaged areas to return to their homes, 
to leave the streets and to permit the authorities to restore quiet and order without further loss of life or property damage. Once this is done, attention can immediately be turned to the great and the urgent problems of repairing the damage that has been done. I appeal to every American in this grave hour to respond to this plea. The Army came to Detroit by night, jeeps and buses rolling smartly toward the plundered, burning city, carrying the first wave of 1,500 paratroopers from the 82nd and 101st Airborne to the Michigan State Fairground, a staging area at the edge of town. They stayed there, making one brief patrol an unobtrusive weapon after their presidentially announced arrival. This long night had begun much earlier. It's just 10 minutes of 8 here in Detroit. The sun is still shining, but the troubled night has already started. Maybe it never really stops. Probably nobody has counted all the fires. Firemen can't get to all of them, but the official estimate is over 800. Some cover a city block. The police used riot guns to gesture the crowd back, but this was an easy fire. Not much hope for the building, but no one shooting at the men. Where businesses didn't burn, their owners came to guard them, carrying guns, ready but not anxious to use them. You uh, come out prepared to use the shotguns? No. Don't want to use them, no. But you would if you had to? Let's just say we don't want to use them, all right? <laughs> but there was less looting tonight and more burning. Some firemen haven't slept for two days. They sweat and smell of smoke. The whole city smells of smoke. Snipers were out tonight, and so was the National Guard. Nervous, they haven't slept much either. Quick to challenge, sometimes quick to shoot. We've had two men wounded, one officer said, and a fireman's been killed. The night was hot and ugly. No one is sure how the shooting started here. No one was sure afterward that anyone had shot at the police and guardsmen. But they answered, shattering streetlights, adding to the darkness, finally singling out one apartment building, ordering everyone out. Hands up. Police searched them, found no guns. No one ever searched the apartments. The sniping flickered across the city. Firemen were pinned down here, police and guardsmen firing back at an enemy who never seemed to stay in the same place. No one was sure which building, which shadow was the target. The daytime looting seemed almost carefree. The night mood was different. The wounded poured into the city's hospitals along with the dead and dying. It wasn't any burglar's bargain day. It was more like war, and the casualties keep going up. The city confirms 21 dead. A check shows at least 25. Estimates of the wounded start at 1,000 and go up. So do the arrests. Well over 2,000 now. Police brought them in by the busload, faster than anyone could count. They announced the arrest of two confirmed snipers. Both said they were innocent. It's not much of a morning in Detroit. This fire burned down a whole block, and there are others like it. If there was ever a larky atmosphere to the trouble here, it vanished during the night. Many still feel this is not racial violence, that its roots are in a revolutionary extremism, not typically or wholly Negro. But whatever its motives, it is violent, and it is not over. Bruce Morton, CBS News, Detroit.
Well, I'm very sorry that uh, federal troops had to be uh, called in. There's no doubt about the fact that when a riot emerges, it has to be halted, and especially uh, when it uh, gets out of hand, uh, when it rises to such uh, astronomical proportions of destruction. Uh, I can't stop the riots. I, I don't know how to do it. I can't stop them. I think we must turn to those who can stop them. The suicidal and irrational acts which plague our streets daily are being sold and watered by the irrational, irrelevant, and equally suicidal debate and delay in Congress. This is an example of moral degradation. Uh, this hypocrisy and confusion seeping through the fabric of our society can ultimately destroy from within the very positive values of our nation, which no enemy could destroy from without. The troops came, but they were not instant peacemakers. Today has been uneasy. Last night was bad. <laughs> Put it right up. came last night, disciplined and the right buses rolled toward the burning, angry city. But they were an almost furtive weapon, most staying in their staging area, deploying only well after midnight. By then, snipers roved the city. Gunfire flickered from neighborhood to neighborhood. National Guardsmen and police, tired, nervous, sometimes hungry, fired at targets that vanished like shadows, ordered tenants out of one building, trying somehow to pin down the enemy. The battle cost lives. Someone shot and killed a fireman. A policeman wounded last night died today. Injured poured in. What started as a kind of carefree looting had become a war. The city confirms 25 dead. There are probably more. Among the wounded, over 40 police, 7 guardsmen, 17 firemen. Police have arrested something like 2,300. Too many for the squad cars and Black Mariahs. They came by the busload. And the city kept burning. The riots spawned a thousand fires. The sky writhed with spiraling smoke. Whole blocks smoldered. The smell was everywhere. Detroit breathed uneasily, covered by a layer of fine gray soot. CBS News correspondent Jack Lawrence was at the biggest blaze. The senselessness and tragedy of the Detroit riots can be summed up in what's happening here. The fire has been raging for more than 30 minutes. The people have been evacuated and yet the firemen are unable to respond. The first fire engines arrived on Harrison Street after almost an hour, too late to save the block of two-story wood houses. The firemen were calm, but there was near panic among many of their guards. The fear of snipers was as intense as the fire. Watch this, Paul. Shoot on the shoot, let's do it. The firemen withdrew to the relief of some soldiers who said, let it burn. And it burned from house to house and across Harrison Street. And by the time the fire engines returned, flaming cinders had ignited the $70 a month home of Mrs. Mary Ola Webb and her four children. One son, Army PFC William Webb, just back from a year in Vietnam. I think this is a shame. This is a disgrace. What? Because people don't have no, we won't have, we don't have no food. We won't have nowhere to stay. Where we gonna go? You have nowhere to go. We don't have nowhere to go. Nowhere to stay. 
Mrs. Webb spent the night on a sidewalk with her children. Today, the Webb family came back to what was their home on Harrison Street to salvage what did not burn and try to find a reason for last night's destruction. What these people are doing is just plain stupid to me. I don't see no sense in what they are doing. I don't see what they accomplish. Uh, what are you going to do? I don't know. There's nothing here anymore. You don't have a home. You don't have anything. Thank you. Like many women in Detroit tonight, Mrs. Mary Ola Webb has no idea how she will feed her family or where she will put her children to bed tonight. Detroit didn't look normal today, but it looked as if it wanted to. Repair work was popular, some businesses opened today, more planned to tomorrow. Michigan's Governor Romney urged the city to come back to life. Uh, due to improvement in the overall situation, a joint statement was issued this morning by Assistant Secretary of Defense. Welcome back. And those were excerpts uh, from uh, news reports from the week of uh, July 23rd, 1967. And uh, today is the 55th anniversary of uh, the 1967 uh, rebellion in the city of Detroit. And uh, we're going to be signing off uh, for the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And um, this is Apayomi uh, Azikawe. We're going to be uh, signing off with the music of jazz guitarist uh, Grant Green uh, from the Album entitled Green Street uh, from 1961. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.